Welcome to another episode of Exploring Possibilities on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, my website, journeyofpossibilities.com, and my YouTube channel has some of the best of the best as well at YouTube slash Cheryl Sitz. I am Cheryl Sitz, and I welcome you to another show, another interesting, inspiring conversation. All of these are designed to help you live a more peaceful, prosperous life naturally. So we talk about all kinds of holistic and spiritual solutions. And we're going to have a really interesting conversation coming up in just a moment. And I hope you'll join us for that. Right now, I want to talk about Mario Rosales of Tech Life Balance. He has helped me create this podcast and journeyofpossibilities.com. He's worked with uh, I, he's worked in IT for companies of all shapes and sizes, including entrepreneurs and solopreneurs. And he's learned a lot about this niche working with me. And so I think he can probably help you too as a listener. Mario, tell us about that. Thank you, Cheryl. You know, one of the things that I've learned, it's this industry of the holistic spiritual field is very different than all other fields I've ever worked with. It, the holistic spiritual field is much more heart-centered which is something that I actually learned even going through my own journey of this. And as I started developing my own sites more in a heart-centered approach with helping you with Journey of Possibilities, man, it, it took me to a whole nother level. You know what? Having learned that, I can share that knowledge and work with other people out there. And all they have to do is reach out to me and I can give them a very individual way of connecting with their people because you know, I learned how to do it and I'm learning with, with your website every day. So reach me at marrosales.net or techlifebalance.net and let me know what you would like help on. Who are you? Why are you here? What wonders and opportunities await you beyond physical death? What happened millennia ago to create the damaged earth and fractured societies you see around you? Empowering, enlightening, internationally acclaimed, the Joseph Communications books offer answers to these questions. Spiritual, concise, contemporary, non-denominational, the communications originate from Joseph, a highly evolved discarnate spirit concerned for you and the future of the planet and its peoples. The words of Joseph and his soul group give you the power to bring light and change into your own life and the lives of others and to restore the earth. Available in paperback, ebook and audiobook formats the communications can be ordered today at www.thejosephcommunications.com and also from Amazon and other major booksellers all proceeds are used for further publishing and advertising and to make the communications available worldwide so today's show is going to be a little different I asked today's guest to join us after meeting him in a Facebook group that Starseed coach and author Eva Marquez and I co-created called Harmonic Convergence 333. And so I don't forget, you can find that group at facebook.com slash groups slash Harmonic Convergence 333 if you'd like to connect with our extended soul family from all over the world. I've met some really interesting people in that group and doing the live meditation that we did. We've got another one of those coming up as well. So definitely check that out. In the people that I met there, I struck up a conversation with a guy named Grayson Lynch. And what I learned about him inspired me so much that I just had to share him with you. And he's here with me today. Welcome, Grayson. Hello. Hi. How are you, Cheryl? I'm good. Thank you so much for being with me today. You have 
really overcome some challenges. And it's interesting to me first how you came to be in Harmonic Convergence 333 because didn't life take a big turn for you in the original Harmonic Convergence? It did. And I would never have found Harmonic Convergence had it not in the 333 site, had it not been a friend that I'd met here locally after everything happened referring me to it. My life changed uh, tremendously on August 16th, 1987. Um, it, it was it was uh, devastating and, and took a long time to become wonderful. It did eventually, but it was quite a turn. What would you like to share with us about what happened then that was so significant and what led up to that point? Uh, so, well, my story is a little strange. Um, I'll have to give some information. Um, When I was in college, 87 was the year between my sophomore and junior year in college. My birthday is on August 15th. So I'm autistic and did not know I was until actually two years ago. My son uh, had been diagnosed as a child, but I had not been diagnosed. So in fact, in 2017, I got uh, the diagnosis of autism and offered membership in Mensa in the same week. When all my life I had thought I was an idiot for not being able to build a life. So when I was in um, when I was in college, I was a, a math major who also took English classes. I didn't know that as a, a part of my autism, I'm gifted in a very particular way. I don't use language the way other people do inside. So. I was in a place where I felt like to build a life, I had to choose between mathematics and poetry. I loved them both. Um, And certain issues in logic happened because of a a logician in the beginning of the 20th century did some work that destroyed my faith that logic would be a a perfect system. So that didn't seem like a good path to be an authentic person for myself and to to have an authentic voice. And poetry didn't seem like a way that I would not starve to death. And I felt like I had to choose between the two, not realizing that my brain doesn't recognize any difference. So I used more and more drugs and alcohol, and I, and I went through more and more. And on August 15th, which is my birthday, I had heard about the harmonic convergence, the alignment of the planets. And for me, it was just a reason to, um, to use some drugs and, and party and celebrate my birthday. But I Googled it uh, or some site, I don't know if Google was around back then, but I looked up online and found out that it was really, there was a lot to it. The alignment of the planets and the end of the 500-year health cycle, all kinds of stuff. So we went on the trip. We went to another college uh, campus. Uh, one of my friends was a, a PhD student there. And in the middle of the afternoon, sitting in on the lawn, I freaked out and decided I all that stuff about the convergence sort of worked in my head. I decided it was the end of the world and the rapture, and God was going to take all the people up he wanted and leave all the people he didn't want behind in hell. And I was going to be one of those because I couldn't decide between mathematics and poetry. So that happened like three minutes. (laughs) And I went from calm sitting on the grass with my friends under a tree to jumping up and screaming and praying to God and running to the nearby building inside uh, the fire escape stairwell was, it was a dormitory, and it was about four flights to the top landing in that stairwell, and I climbed over the railing, threw my arms wide, and gave myself to God. I, please save my soul, and I dove off. And I dropped about 
maybe 10, 12 feet to the, the landing below, but I nosedived it. So I landed on my forehead. So my friends had seen me flip out and they called me. The, the, the EMTs came in and found me there on the steps. When I had realized I wasn't dead, I started praying. So they found me laying on the steps, babbling. I had a little nosebleed. And they scooped me up and they took me to a local hospital. There was nothing they could do for me. They just had to wait until I came down. So by morning, I was better. Nobody, since none of my friends had seen me jump, they didn't report it. And when the doctor asked me um, if I was okay, if there was anything I wanted to say, I wasn't going to say, yeah, and I jumped off the stairwell because they'd locked me up in the psych ward. So I just kind of nodded my head, I'm okay. My friends took me to the one of their apartments that was close to the campus. And I just wanted to lay down for a few minutes before I came out to have some coffee. So a few hours later, I came out and everybody was in the living room and I was going to have some coffee. And I walked into the room and they turned to me and they started doing things to me, which I would understand later was talking. And I didn't understand language anymore. I didn't understand what had happened. I didn't know why it had happened. And I managed to get some coffee. They took me home. And in the days that followed, I did not know, because it was 1987, that I had sustained a brain injury. Well, um, and you had, just to take a break here for a second, you had actually planned to end your life, and so... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I had no intentions of surviving that dive. I thought God was... I was proving my commitment, my unreserved commitment to God, um, like, like Islamic submission to God. I was going to give up everything, prove my worth by diving off that landing, um, because I, I was such a failure. I couldn't choose between mathematics and poetry, so I couldn't live life. I was useless. The only thing I could prove was my commitment to trust God to do something else with me. I never intended to survive that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and you're brilliant. And to end up with, you did survive, and you had a brain injury, and and that somehow change the course of your life anyway. So it's kind of interesting how all that happened. So what was the nature of your brain injury and how do you feel like this changed the course of your life? Well, so it was a concussion, but it was so traumatic without the understanding that it was a medical problem. I didn't understand what had happened to me and I, I it was how I interpreted it. I'm gay. So I assumed that I was being punished. And it was the kind of horrific punishment. I, I had no problem believing that God hated me because I had been taught that. And well, like, of course, that's just the nature of God. I was created to be burned and hated forever. That was okay. But I didn't know the extent of the hatred. And, and when I couldn't communicate with, like, I, was, I would learn later that I was in a dissociated trauma state. Um, my sense of time stopped. It remained frozen. I wouldn't experience it being the next moment for uh, more than 30 years. So I learned wow. that when I got into trauma work. But, but it, it, it shattered my ability to process well enough to really have any, any active relationships in the outside world. I stayed to myself. I prayed a lot. I was convinced that I should read the Bible and get religious and all that stuff. It, I had to be straight because anything... I felt like uh, General Zod in the Superman comics getting locked. I called it the universe next door. And the only reason I didn't kill myself was because I believe God hated me so much that he, there was no reason he wouldn't just put me in another body so that I'd have to still deal with this and learn how to be someone else. 
because I'm inherently lazy, so I didn't want to do that. <laughs> but when I, you know, when I get that was August. So when September came around, I noticed when I started trying to, it, what had happened was that it disrupted my mind's ability to process symbols very well. Um, mathematics, the nature of my autism was that mathematics and music, um, any kind of symbolic thing, uh, language, they were all the same to me. And, and my brain could do that and drink it in like water since it was really little and hold it. I, I, I learned by feeling. I remember a feeling and then put language to it afterwards. I don't learn cognitively and put feelings to it. That's a consequence of how I process. But, but it disrupted that. So when I returned to school, I found that math had become work. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, this must be like what math is for other people. How terrible. <laughs> no wonder they hate it. But, but that was my junior year. And, and my ability, it felt like having a mind that worked like a TARDIS and trading it for a bicycle. And I was so afraid of what had happened to me that it was my fault. And that if I told anybody, they would think I was crazy and locked me away. I couldn't tell anybody. So I returned to my studies and I couldn't do math the way I could. I had gotten a full ride to a PhD at the University of Kentucky at Lexington, paid for from bachelor's to PhD, housing, uh, books, uh, life in, or, or health insurance, um, all my courses, a full ride. And, and I knew when I got involved in classes that, that my ability to do math was just destroyed. Everything that I'd known in my life was gone. Every plan that I could make. And I didn't have anyone to ask. And I didn't understand it. So I, you know, I, I did my best to become a straight person. But it was really desperate because I wanted anything. I felt like God had shut me out of this universe. And I was just left there. And I thought, actually, as a couple of years went by, that it was just forever. Well, um, and one of the things that when we talked before that really grabbed me that I could feel with you was when you started talking about the depth of the isolation and the shame and the rejection that you believe that you had from God, like you yeah. were completely isolated. You had lost contact with this gift that you had had your whole life. And you felt like God was punishing you too. So you couldn't reach out to other people. There was no God to have a connection with because you felt like you were being punished. The, the level of isolation that you described to me, I can't even imagine. And, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about on this show, because many of us go through our own version of hell where we feel that isolation, that dark night of the soul. What, mm -hmm. what helped you through that? What was your light? What was your hope? So that gets even weirder. Um, <laughs> about six months in, uh, I started hearing a, a voice talking to me, like directing me. And I would learn years later, I thought it meant I had gone crazy. That certain trauma survivors sometimes experience a kind of voice that gives them direction and stuff. I learned that in New York City and Bellevue Hospital. Uh, five years, like 2014, but not realizing what that word was, I didn't, I, it was just a voice. And at first I thought God had, in addition to locking me away, he had moved into the attic of my mind. Again, I had no interpretation for this. So, and he wouldn't leave. So I tried to evict him. That doesn't work. It didn't work for me. Um, and so in the process of doing that, to feel like I could get some privacy, I did anything I could 
to make God go. I decided I can't evict God, so I would commit a sin so terrible that he would get disgusted and leave. And I, I had to, uh, I decided I would, if I damned Christ, then that would be effective. I tried it. I set the day. I did it uh, in the privacy of my home, globally. And, and when I did it, I thought I committed the worst sin imaginable. And nothing happened. Um, so, so then I was in a position where I knew not only had God locked me away, but I, to my thinking, I had made, done something so horrible that God wouldn't even, there was no hope after I died. Well, so the side effect of that was that moving forward, whatever that worse was, when it told me things to do, it didn't matter whether I obeyed or not, because God couldn't make it any worse. And so um, for the rest of my life, I got into to recovery uh, for drugs and alcohol five years later. And, and I, I could go to the meetings, but I basically remained to myself, and that became part of my spiritual program. I had this voice that I didn't have to obey, which is a really special quality to people that uh, usually get billed as having command hallucinations. I didn't have to do what it said, and I, it gave me a companion. The other thing was out in the world, I couldn't connect with other people. There was no companionship. So I took this idea that Carl, I heard about it in my English classes about synchronicity from Carl Jung, that quote unquote meaningful coincidences. And that became the companion that I had. I'd look to the world for if I needed support or I got sad, I'd look for something hopeful in a random event. And, and so looking for the, the song on the radio by accident or a snatch of a street sign or something, something to give me encouragement, that became my way of life. So 27 years later, um, they, in 2010, they had sedated me. I'd gone into psychiatric care. They sedated me and hospitalized me in electricity for 27 years. And, the, and we agreed that none of that had helped. The diagnoses, they didn't know what was wrong, but something was, and it wasn't what they'd been treating. And for a year, they took me off of those medications. And I didn't know how to live not sedated, so my life fell apart. And I ended up out on the West Coast. And... Um, when I finally made my way, I mean, some things happened that were special in San Francisco. But to this point, I ended up in Portland, Oregon, um, where somebody finally asked me, have you ever hit your head? And I'm like, well, yeah, but it didn't hurt me. She's like, you should see a neurologist. <laughs> so I saw the doctor, and then I learned that I'd sustained a concussion. He took it by history. So then all of a sudden, I had a reasonable explanation for what had happened to me all those years ago. They found a medication called clonidine. It's an alpha blocker a blood pressure medication sometimes used for brain injury. And I took it at 15 times the standard dose, but within two days, I could come back. And I was horrified because I never expected to come back. And there was a brain rehab. Um, I lost housing in Portland and ended up in New York City. And that was where I learned when I shared with a social worker about the voice. Um, I learned that I wasn't psychotic. I was a trauma survivor. Um, bad things had happened, and this is how my mind coped. So I had lost my interpretation of uh, what had happened back then. And, and so my understanding of what had happened and being my fault and all that stuff, that was out. And my whole understanding of pathologizing my relationship with God was also out. Um, but I had, and I've been, I've been uh, in recovery for, for more than 20 years by this time. And I remember being in New York City 
in Bellevue, the psyche D is in the basement and I'm in a dark square room. And I had just learned that everything that I'd known about my adult life was gone, was not true. And I had no reason to believe anything. Um, and, and so in that place, what came to me was that whatever recovery people believe, um, the fact of the experience, even though they argue about and don't agree on anything like any human being, could be human beings, um, they all fail to agree on a single thing. Whatever that single thing is, it saves their butt on a daily basis. And that's not happily ever after Candyland in the future. That works demonstrably in their life and has for almost a century. And because it had worked somehow in a way I didn't understand in my own life for more than 20 years, that made me willing to believe there was something. And from then, it was, I started coming back. I, I restructured, I started having to restructure my life. And I had to build tools that work, that, that give me a way of understanding how to take part in the social world because there's nothing for an autistic person that I know of. Um, and, and so, like, I, I, from, I, got, I got released from Bellevue. I went to a homeless shelter. Um, got assaulted there and ended up in a Bronx hospital. And it was suggested that if I stayed in New York City, I'd be killed. So I should go to Portland or back here to Rochester. And when I came back here, my life had slowly come back. Um, but the, my, you know, a lot of things had to happen. But I had a lot of ideas that I'd come up with to interpret my situation uh, that, that didn't work. And I didn't know any better. And there was no one to ask. I think my deepest fear was that my way of sorting things out was messed up. There was something wrong with me. Um, and so uh, now, like, it's, it's been, well, gee, 2019, so it's been four more years. Um, and my life is lovely and quiet. I, I'm, uh, and I found that part of the reason that there's no way that I can be like other people is because I'm different in some ways, and that's just fine. Um, yes, so. it is. Yes, it is. And I feel like you're such a beacon for autistic people because you're right. There isn't a lot of help. We still know very little about it. We're trying, mm-hmm. but um, and and to even think that it's a disability is is ridiculous because five minutes around an autistic person and you realize that there's so much brilliance in there and and obviously a Mensa yes you're brilliant <laughs> it's just uh, <laughs> they, it, they think they think I'm pretty good <laughs> one of the one of the things I found too is that in some native cultures autistic people are we're considered special or gifts we're not considered burdens yes um so that's I will say one more dazzling thing. Please. When I left New York, when I left New York State and I went to California, it was because I needed to start over again, and I I had no life here. I had been medicated and sedated and diagnosed and and put in psych wards for all my life, and I needed to leave. What I didn't know was that in New York State, there's a right to shelter law, which means if you go to a psych hospital and you don't have a place to stay, they have to find you a place. Well, that's not true in California. So I went out to California thinking that I'll show up at a psych hospital and say, I need help, help me, and I'll be fine. When I got out there, I went into a hospital, and they checked me over and they said, you're okay. If you're not suicidal, you're good to go. And I was horrified. Um, I had never taken care of myself in my life. I, I had lived my life 
I was just going to do what I was told because I was obviously an idiot. So somebody else should direct my life. So when I was out there, that lasted for about three weeks. And I was on the streets and in a tenderloin in some rough areas south of market. And I remember the day that I decided to really give up. Um, I was sober at that time, like 19 years in recovery. And I and the plan was I decided I was going to jump on the light rail and go out and see the ocean and then find a way to kill myself, run in front of a bus or something. Didn't matter. But I got on the light rail and I decided that um, that that I was going to go out and see the ocean. And keep in mind that I had lost my life, all of my community, because nobody understood what had happened to me. Um, and so I tell the higher power that I had. Uh, all right, it's been a great ride. Thanks for all the sobriety. I'm going to go out and die now, but I'll see you soon. And I meant it. And as soon as I gave up, I let go of that strap and went to sit down. And my best friend calls from 3,000 miles away. He never calls. And at the exact instant, and, and I, <laughs> I said hello, and he says, hey, how are you doing? And I said, well, I don't think I'm going to make it, but uh, but I'm gonna, we're going to go under a tunnel, so I'll give you a call. We're going to lose signal. We went into the tunnel, and as soon as the signal dropped, I went back to God in prayer, and I'm like, are you serious? I was so <laughs> done. You know, like, really, really? And we got out the other side of the tunnel, and I called my friend back, and I said, I've never done this before in my life. There's 10 million things to do. I can't talk to people. And he says, whoa, a human being needs three things, food, shelter, and a goal. You do those things and you'll be fine. And I feel like it was that particular miracle that gave me the road back. And a blessing of the road back was that I got to live with poor people and homeless people and on the streets and people that are marginalized. And I got to do that in several areas of the country. Um, And I got to experience a different side of life that I had shown a lot of contempt for religion and in some places, religious people were the only ones giving food to poor people. Yes. Only ones. So, um, you know, when I got back to here, that, is, that gave me a, a different experience, a different way to look at how people, kindness of strangers, how people help each other without knowing each other. Um, and that was really helpful to me. So when I got back here, it informed how I moved forward. Most people, I don't think, mean to do harm. But there's another side of that. A lot of people don't understand what they want, how to help, but they want to help. And that showed me that I believe that's more important. It's not knowing how to help. It's having a heart that, that wants to help and making that as clear as possible and being able to try to take responsibility for ourselves and then build the best connection we can and work it out slowly. I don't think the way we are in the world now is anybody's fault. I think we're a childhood race that is growing into adulthood, and it's just hard to be a teenager. So that, I don't know if that's helpful, but... That's really beautiful. I love that. And I just want to interject here, whether you're listening from a place of relating to what Grayson's talking about to one of these experiences, and you're in that place of wanting hope and help, or you're listening now from a place of, I could help, I could do something. What do I want to do to help? Either way, reach out to somebody and, and speak that because Absolutely. there is so much for both sides 
that can be done and reach out to me through the show, reach out to Grayson, reach out to any of us. But either way, that's really what we're talking about here is, and I love that you had a Carl Jung experience that saved your life. One of those, what was the quote, a meaningful coincidence. That's perfect. Yeah. Yes. All of this has really given you some profound insight into humanity and where we're at now and, and lots of areas for for love and compassion on both sides of the fence. How, what are you doing with your life now? It sounds like you're doing very well. What what are you up to to make a difference? Because that's what you're about now, right? Yes. When I got taken off the meds in 2011, I didn't have any, I didn't understand what had happened. And I just, this is what I did, how I coped with it. There were no tools. There was no one to ask. Nobody understood what was happening. And my choice was to suspect that Perhaps it was something about the way I was framing the problem that was preventing me from seeing how to apply existing tools. So I built something new because I didn't have any. I I improvised something. And I I took uh, the traditional 12 steps and I designed a new thing that I call the language box perspective that I used to explore my uh, my own language, my own words, so that I could see if there was something some way without meaning to that I was getting in my own way. And in the process, I had this, I, I took a single word and I looked at my relationship with that word over time. I chose sanity and insanity because each 12-step program is, that I've seen is insanity over a particular thing. I looked at the general case, like Einstein has special relativity and general relativity. I did this with my language and I took that and so I went back through my own history like an inventory to to look at how I had evolved my understanding of sanity and insanity over time when a family member was diagnosed with that or when I questioned my mental health because of being gay or like all through history my own history what I found is that although the meaning had changed I had a clear experience of being the same person forming the understanding over time and that was a new thing for me. I had I had been lost in the neurotypical way of language as social concepts for my whole life. And so the first time I got a clear experience of myself outside of any role, any context, any philosophy, and it changed my life. So after that, moving forward, that gave me a place to stand in my own authentic experience that was really clear, but not answerable to anybody else. It was my own individual thing. As I did that with other words, a new way of looking at the world appeared. And I came to see that um, whenever people try to, a lot of times when people try to solve a problem in language, because they they only have the way that they evolved language from their childhood up, their infancy up, they frame problems in a way that guarantee that they'll never solve them. The, and, and social issues of social justice, um, People will frame idealistic solutions to social situations, but the way they frame it guarantees that there's no human being on the planet that can sit down at the table to work it out. And when I saw that, it's not only for autistic people, it's for anybody, but I saw, I call it context blindness. And my heart started to go out to other people because I'd see that almost everybody, I actually have never met an evil person in my life. Everybody does the best that they can. And when I see that the result of the best they can do is still harmful, if I know they're doing the best they can, it makes it a lot easier to forgive them and find a way to to work with it constructively and positively 
if something hurts me, then I set a really conscious, intentional, self-responsible boundary. But I don't use language to control them. I don't have to, to accept or reject somebody else's religion or politics or anything. I have a third choice. And now that I see that, I, I understand that when, when we don't solve problems, it's, I feel like it's because we're in the way that language originally evolved in our species and we're outgrowing that. And, and so that's what I contribute to because I don't look at someone who can't solve a life problem or a group that can't solve a life problem as somebody doing something wrong. What they're doing is a very healthy thing with a tool that has, has reached the limit of its power. It's not powerful enough to, to deal with the world as it is. The world is getting complex faster than we can simplify it. That's not anybody's fault. It's, it's an opportunity to step up. So how I contribute now, I have a blog, I have a blog. I don't know if these are methods because I process differently, but it's a really, I'm really impassioned about it only, only because I love people. They're so beautiful. And I see them suffering with problems that the way they frame them, when I listen to them, I listen and I realize, wow, you frame that so that you're totally invested in something that will never work. And I, it, I can't look at that and see suffering and not do something about it. Yes. So, uh, we're we're very limiting with our language. We uh, we do that in so many ways. We we give our power away through our language before we even start to try and fix a problem. Well, I'd love to do yeah. that, but that's just not going to work. I'm I can't do that yeah. because we we are so self-defeating in our language, not understanding that that's setting ourselves up for failure. Right. And, and plus and what we, you're saying we, the limitations. I mean, there's there's a lot to what you're talking about. It's great work. I'm yeah. glad to hear you're doing that. How do you help people? Do they reach out to you? Do you work with people now on this? <clears throat> Sometimes they do. I've tried uh, meetup groups. I give a blog and, and a blog started a, a YouTube channel, the Language Box Respective Blog. Um, it's it's surprisingly slow. I, I work with a few people locally. I'm not a very social person, so I'm still overcoming with a lot of trauma. But I found that I use, there's no, when I was diagnosed autistic, my trauma therapist quit immediately and said, find someone who specializes in autism and a male, because I had certain childhood abuse issues. I needed a male uh, who specializes in autism and, uh, and trauma. And I looked in psychology today locally for who would take my insurance. And there were two. One would medicate me and the other one only works with kids. End of story. So I've had to create my ways of dealing with trauma and these have worked, but it's slow. So, um, but another, when I, when I work with somebody, um, I care, all I can offer them is like, I don't create a philosophy. I create a series of, of exercises to do, um, to, to produce the experience of, of having, a, a, an awareness of how a person builds their relationship with language. And everybody is different with that. And so the thing that I understand is that in the, not only from our understanding of the world and how we build language, we're also forming our senses of who we are. So when understanding fails, it doesn't feel safe anymore. That's why people get reckless mm-hmm. when they're faced with something they don't understand, like a person of a different gender, orientation, anything that's threatening. Um, and that's part of why it becomes that threatening. It, it threatens a sense of how the self relates in the world. The nice part about this work is that once I have an experience of myself outside of any role or philosophy I've ever used or any 
or any demands that have ever been placed on me, I have a new footing. I have a new way to stay safe, not dependent on my social stature. And, and out of that, a new way of approaching things to, can begin. If I'm not emotionally invested in getting on the same page with a person I have a conflict with anymore, if I can keep myself safe some other way because I know that I'm okay outside of whether or not we can resolve that, length, that conflict, then I have an ability to respond to conflict far more intelligently and, and, and compassionately because my safety doesn't depend on it as much. So when I share this with other people, it's not so that they can get how I think. It's so that they can see that there's a way that they can have their authentic experience outside of language, and then that can be a up-and-running uh, perspective on their lives. Once I developed this in myself, it's been about eight years now, it helped it be okay for all that happened to me in those decades when I was being sedated and I was associated. A lot of weird stuff happened. But I, I hope that over time, if I'm able to share this more with the world, I'm writing a memoir now, I'm trying to, um, that people will find a third choice. Because I, I think one of the challenges of our time is that it seems like there's only a few people solving the world's problems. And I imagine, what would it be like to have a world in which all 8 billion of us were solving our problems? What would that be like? How awesome would that be? <laughs> Instead of looking to government or a church or a social group to fix things, everybody gets a chance to contribute their own individual authentic voice in a way that we become sure is safe and affirmed. I stars the limit and then maybe beyond that. I love that, Grace, and that's a perfect wrap up for our talk today. That's a perfect place to leave it because you're exactly right. And if you can do that with all the challenges that you've been through, then the rest of us can too. And the work that you're doing, the reframing that you're talking about is perfect for any kind of conflict resolution. And yes. we all think we want to go out and fix the world. You know what? If we can start in our own families, if we can start in our own communities and our own on our own street at our own schools and jobs that's that is the change we need we can start right where we are and that's using those tools that's perfect so i will post links to your youtube channel and your work and then they can also find you on facebook hook up with all of us in harmonic convergence 333 and and get to know us there we always have great conversations going there i'm so glad that i've gotten to know you there i really i really have enjoyed this opportunity to connect with you today thank you it's been an honor i i just um i think you're you're doing wonderful work and i want to tell everybody out there uh stay wonderful because i believe that you are everyone every one of us. That's awesome. And you are too, Grayson. I'm so glad that you stuck around. You are making a difference and, and I'm glad you're here. <laughs> thank you, Cheryl. I appreciate it. I'm grateful. Thank you. And thank you for listening today. Let us know what you thought of the show. You can reach out to us, info at journeyofpossibilities.com. And if you listen week after week, show us some love, journeyofpossibilities.com slash support with your donation of any amount. And we will see you next week right here on Exploring Possibilities.